Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Your hosts are Becky Olson and Sharon Hennepin. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, their friends and family with the resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here are your hosts, Sharon and Becky. Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. My name is Becky Olson. I'm a four-time, nearly 22-year survivor of advanced, excuse me, of advanced stage breast cancer. I'm also battling bronchitis. So, Sharon, if I have to hit my mute button, you're all on, girl. No problem. <laughs> so, anyway, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Okay. Um, I'm Sharon Hennepin. I'm a 24-year survivor, certified life coach, and the author of my new book, Thriving Beyond Cancer. We're also the co-founders of Breast Friends. And what Becky didn't say is she's also a motivational speaker, a speaker mentor, oh. and a <laughs> published author of her book, The Hat That Saved My Life. (laughs) Thanks, Sharon. That might give you all a clue about how much talking I might have to skip today. (laughs) But (laughs) but before I skip anything, I wanted to just take a minute. You know, I had kind of an, an inspirational conversation this weekend with my daughter down in Georgia, and we were talking about the concept of I'm enough. And, you know, Sharon and I have been going into the women's prison here in Oregon for 12 years. It started as a cancer support group, but at some point in time, we kind of figured out that what they really needed was kind of a healthy dose of self-esteem. And one of Sharon's teachings that she does as a certified life coach is she talks to the to the people that we work with about being enough. And, you know, when I first heard her talk about that, it was kind of one of those things that got into my head. I, un- I understood it logically, but something happened this weekend that really put that fully in my heart. And it, it kind of gave me a different, a little bit different perspective on it. And I hope you don't mind if I share this. And Sharon, I know you're going to have comments about it too, so feel Absolutely. free. Uh-huh. But when I was talking to my daughter, it seems like sometimes, you know, when someone's been through something really difficult, it's hard to feel like you're enough, you know, because we know where we've, what we've gone through. We know how hard it's been. But then when we've actually come through the other side of it, sometimes it's really easy to get caught up in that that concept that we need other people to know that we're good enough. We need them to know how far we've come so that that helps us feel better about ourselves. And that's really kind of the opposite of what this is because, you know, we know what we've been through. God knows what we've been through. And that's really what's enough. And to me, that was a real eye-opener. And I know that, you know, just a little case in point, the first, the first time I hit 148 pounds, I was freaked out because I was on my way up to 148. Then the first time I, the second time I hit 148, I was on my way down, and then I felt really good. And you know, it's kind of like you have to feel like sometimes you have to tell people what you've suffered and been through so that they can also think you're good enough. I don't know. Does that make sense? I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but no, but it, it's actually, it's really cool that you brought that up because um, I know I had that kind of epiphany moment too at times. Um, it was a few, several years ago. And when I actually had to get up and in front of a group on a microphone say, I am enough. And I couldn't do it without actually getting very emotional, crying the whole nine yards. And since then, 
uh, I can do that now because I believe it more than I did that back then. And it is interesting because you don't have to tell people. And I think that that is a, an interesting spin on it, Becky. I, I'm glad you brought that up. Well, I have my daughter to thank for that. She's very wise. So, yeah. Um, wow. yeah. That's great. So, well, thank you for indulging in that moment. So, we're going to get on with our show now because we have a really packed show. Our guest today is Dr. John West. Dr. West is a breast cancer surgeon and the author of Prevent, Survive, Thrive Every Woman's Guide to Optimal Breast Care. And his goal is to save lives by providing the most up to date, medically sound answers to many confusing and controversial questions facing all of us. And when I heard one of his topics was, can cell phones really cause breast cancer? You know, I've been hearing about that for a long time, and we're going to get into that at some point here in this during this interview today. Um, but I would just like to take a moment and welcome Dr. West. Thanks for joining our show today. Well, thanks for having me. This is a pleasure. Well, we're delighted to have you. So why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself to our audience, you know, tell us where you work, how'd you get into oncology, and why specifically breast cancer? Okay, well, I always wanted to be a surgeon from the time I was 11. I went to uh, UC Berkeley, uh, UC San Francisco for my surgical training. I spent some time in England. I came into practice in Orange County in 1973. At that point, I was doing mostly trauma and vascular surgery, but I was there at the time we were doing radical mastectomies and before the time of effective chemo and before the time of of mammograms. So I saw all this take place in the last 40 years and I've seen incredible uh, progress. But what prompted me to think about doing a book was despite all this progress, most a large percentage of the women are not taking advantage of it. The doctors are not taking a leading role. And I've come to the conclusion that if women want optimal care, they have to take charge of their breast care. And that's what the book is designed to do, to inspire them to take charge of their breast health. Well, and we talk about that all the time, being your own best advocate, because you're right. We absolutely need to do that because we know our bodies. And so you're right. We we can't rely on on the healthcare system to kind of take care of us. We need to take charge. Yep. And Dr. West, you mentioned something to me uh, in an earlier conversation about your wife and the kind of the role that she played in your direction that you've gone. Would you like to share a little bit about that? Well, my wife's a nurse, and she's always been uh, health conscious, and she's been doing self-exam classes for 30 years. She does lymphedema support programs. She's done that for about 20 years, and her own own program she developed from scratch, and it's been highly uh, successful. She's worked with our volunteers, and then uh, a year and a half ago, she went in for her mammogram. Her breasts are quite dense. She had the 3D mammogram. One view showed a little tiny spot that the other observers thought it was nothing. It was biopsied, and she had a six-millimeter invasive lobular cancer, which is a wow, a, a wow. unusual uh, pick. Yeah. They're very hard to see. And then, to the surprise of all of us, she had a positive lymph node. So she started with the intraoperative radiation, but when they found out about the positive node, she ended up having a whole breast irradiation. And of course, she's on hormone blockade now, and she will be for at least five years total. What is interoperative radiation? Can you explain that to our audience? Right. So the standard radiation, you go in for six weeks and they radiate the entire breast. 
with mm-hmm. intraoperative, we put a little balloon catheter into the uh, cavity where we, where we remove the cancer. We insert a probe that has an, an energy-producing device like radioactive material that will kill cancer cells. That, that is turned on for about 20 minutes while a patient's still asleep. It's removed, and the patient is closed up in radiation, and, and she's done with radiation. Now, this wow. is only for the for the smaller, uh, very favorable prognostic. It's not for all cancers, but it's something women ought to know. And a question they ask, am I a candidate for intraoperative radiation? And uh, some cases the doctors are too busy or they don't know how to do it or they don't uh, haven't been involved with that. That's why it's so important, to, if you can, to go to a specialty center. But we know that not every woman in the United States can go to a specialty center. So the thing is, if with a book, you become a specialist. And if the right. doctor you know, says, don't worry about that lump, madam, it's just fibrocystic or you're just a hysterical female, say, you know what, I'm going to go find another doctor who'll take, take, uh, will listen to me, they'll do a directed ultrasound, they'll do a mammogram with cone compression views, if they find an abnormality, they'll do a vacuum-assisted biopsy. And if, oh, by the way, if they don't want to do all of that, I'll find a doctor that does. Right, right, good, good, good. Well, that's a, an important piece to understand, again, being your own advocate. Yeah, and, and Dr. West, you, as a surgeon, I remember when I was first diagnosed, when they, they, you know, they don't really officially diagnose you till you have the biopsy, but when I had my uh, mammogram and they found it, my first point of contact at that point then was the surgeon as my specialist, yep. and he's the one that did the rest and, and de- you know, delivered the news to me. As that person, because that's what you are as well, um, when we go see that specialist for the first time, what are some of the questions that we should be asking our, our surgeon when, at that initial diagnosis? Is there a, a key thing that we should be t- asking them well, about? I, yeah, I approached that problem with the book, and, and the, what I came up with is there's about 12 things that you should consider on your first visit, and it's, of those 12 things, you should pick out three or four that really apply to you, and it's, if you're not sure, just add it, and the doctor can explain it, but it's nice to go in with a, a thoughtful list so that you can go back home and then take notes on it, and some of those things that don't apply to you, you may ask about IORT, even though you're not a candidate, you, you need to know about it. Uh, you need to know, do you need chemotherapy first? You need to know, do you need to do genetic testing? Are you a candidate to save your breast, or if you're going to have a uh, mastectomy, are you a candidate for nipple sparing, or are you a candidate for immediate reconstruction? So that's a complex discussion. It's different right. with every patient, and uh, not every patient can come in prepared. And so the first thing I ask a patient after, you know, we've, shake, took, we've had a hug and we sit down to talk is, do you have any questions? Because that's a real clue to me as to where, where they are in the process. But some yeah. people, you know, are starting from scratch. They don't want to know too much at all. They want the minimum. And then over time they open up and you can provide them with more information. Others have a long list. I mean, they have 25, I've had two pages of questions and sometimes you can kind of condense those <laughs> and focus on the things that are most important. So it's right. kind of an art form and you need the experience to really provide that. But the book, the, the chapter uh, on just diagnosed is the name of it. it. It outlines them in some detail and it gives you sort of the answers in a short form so so that you can prepare yourself and it also can tell which ones would apply to you and which ones might not apply to you. Well, having been on the other side of this, you know, being, being a patient and, you know, I've been a patient four times now. um, I think that the first time out, you're so scared. You don't know anything about books. You don't, you don't have that in your back pocket. You're just scared. You don't, 
you, you don't even sometimes know what to ask. I think you find out when you start. Yeah, you, you don't know what internet. you don't know. <laughs> yeah, so the chances that somebody's going to have already read your book and know what to know these things probably is pretty slim to none at that point. But, um, but we're, and we will definitely talk about your book at the end. But I, I wanted to just kind of find out. I know sometimes a patient might go in and they may have some questions and the doctor may not take them seriously. Now, that didn't happen to me. Is that, do you find that you get... Does that happen to your patients where well, they went to not, another not opinion? Well, not so much and, anymore. Uh, okay. I, I can, but, it, but it does happen. I see it particularly with nipple discharge where they don't understand it. I see right. it very commonly with Paget's disease, which is a focal skin kind of mm-hmm. cancer that can be lethal if not diagnosed early, but it's curable mm-hmm. if it is diagnosed early. And uh, in terms of lumps, most of the doctors now send them off uh, to breast imaging. I think it's up to the woman to say, you know, maybe I'm only 35, but it runs in my family. And even though you don't think I need a mammogram, I think I need a, a mammogram. And so right, uh, right. the rule that we use for under 40 is if your uh, first degree relative, your mother, for instance, had it at 45, you should start yearly screening at 35. So that's a yeah, general that rule that we sense. use. And I think it's, a, and younger women should probably have the 3D mammogram because their breasts tend to be dense. And if their breasts are dense, they should consider follow up with a screening ultrasound. Or if they have a strong family history, we add the MRI. Right, right. Yeah, yeah and sense. I think the younger women are the ones that really have the difficulty sometimes convincing their doctor that there's, you know, something wrong. I've talked to, you know, several women in their middle 20s who who had a lump and they were very concerned and they took it seriously and had had to get a couple different opinions because their doctor was like, oh, it's nothing, you know, kind of thing. And that's what we want to hear. But unfortunately, those women, you know, if they don't become their own best health advocate, yeah, they could find it much, much later in a much worse stage if they don't take it seriously. You hit the nail on the head on a major <laughs> problem. We virtually ignore women until they're 40. But a lot of the, the advanced cancers are women under 40, and a lot of them have exactly the story. In fact, the book was this, uh, dedicated to Michelle Watson, who was a senior in college when she felt the lump. She went to student health, and they said, oh, don't worry about it. She came home. Her parents found out about it. They took her to several doctors. Nothing. And they all said, don't worry. Uh, finally, uh, a couple of years later, she started developing bone pain. They did a scan, and she had metastatic disease. Oh, and they it just breaks my breast. heart. It had, yeah. you know, it's heartbreaking. It's terrible. Yes. And, yeah. But here's the thing that's so ironic. Your listeners, just take away this one message from me, please. If you have a, think you have a lump, demand a directed ultrasound to that area. The vast majority of them will be seen on the uh, ultrasound, and you'll get into an imaging department that can make the decision, well, maybe you need an ultrasound and a mammogram. But for do- there's so many doctors that do not understand the value of the ultrasound, and it's critically important, and it's so incredibly easy, and no pain, no radiation. So if you think you have a lump, the next first step is to do the ultrasound. Oftentimes, it's just going to be a cyst or, more commonly, a fibroadenoma in young women, a, both benign conditions, so they can be reassured. But some of those uh, solid lesions who, that look benign should sometimes need at least a core biopsy because some of them can fool you. So you just yeah. have to be very 
aggressive in this young age group. And you're absolutely right. The women must demand this. As this they're, the most, they're, they're seeing primary care doctors that are so busy on their computer and they have, uh, that they don't have time to go into this thing. It's easier for them to say, oh, you don't need a mammogram. Oh, don't worry about the lump or, or because they just don't have the time or the sometimes the mindset to deal with this kind of an issue. Right, right. And if and if they haven't worked with a lot of young women who've had cancer, then yeah, I mean that would make sense because in my in my opinion, you know, it's a shame to have anyone go through that. I mean, I was 40 and I thought that was way 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 too young because anybody that I had ever talked to at that point in my life had always been in their late 50s or 60s or 70s. I mean, they were way much older and it was like, ugh. Yeah, it it can be it can be uh, mind-boggling anyway. I, I know we want to change directions a bit and um we're getting close to the break time, but let's at least start this conversation before the break. Um Talk about the recommendations being pushed to change the screening mammograms from age 40 to 50. Obviously, um, you're, you have a strong opinion about our younger women. And how about, how about that middle age that we're talking about? Will it save this more lives? Probably, it'll cost many, many lives. I agree. The public, first of all, is based on totally flawed data. It's done by primary care doctors. It's the same group that said pap smears every three years. It's the same group that told men to stop getting their PSA until they're 50. Well, guess what? It turns out now that men uh, have generally stopped doing it if, uh, until 50. They're showing up with a higher incidence of advanced prostate cancer. The exact same thing would happen with breast cancer. A woman who has a stage one or a stage two breast cancer at age 42 or 40. 43 will have a stage three or a stage four breast cancer in most cases by the age of uh, 50. So they have, they need more radical surgery. They have a lesser, they have a higher mortality rate. So it, it, it is just mind boggling that these primary care doctors could come up with recommendations that are so stupid. I mean, first of all, there are more <laughs> years of life lost for women in their forties than all the years of life lost from 50 yeah. on. Breast cancer is a disease of young women, not a disease of old women. Now, older women, of course, get it, but it's more, it tends to be less aggressive, uh, and they're getting all the, you know, the help they need that by then they're usually getting their mammogram. But it, but it's women under 40 now that are being ignored, and we meet, we need to pay more attention to them, and the ultrasound is key. The women to 40 to 50, that's a big, big group. These are productive women who have families, and if there's a delay in diagnosis, and they have to have a mastectomy and chemotherapy, and sometimes not make it, just because they delayed that mammogram that's a tragedy and it's a tragedy that can be 100% avoided I Dr. Agree. West you are so passionate Amazing. I love that and we, yes. we so appreciate it unfortunately we have to go out to break so we're gonna, <laughs> but there's, a, there's more to talk about on this topic so oh, when we boy, come yes. back from break we're going to pick this up a little bit more because we really need to kind of clear up this mystery a little bit uh, of what they're trying to do so stay with us we'll be back in a minute Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel 
every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. When was the last time you felt free? It's time to uncover that feeling again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a card that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states. Giving you the freedom to love, to dream, to dance like no one is watching. Regions Blue Cross Blue Shield. Live fearless. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to our program. We've been talking to Dr. John West breast cancer surgeon and author of Prevent, Survive, Thrive, Every Woman's Guide to Optimal Breast Care. So the before the break, we were talking about this whole thing about changing the age for screening from 40 to 50. And I know Becky and I were very um, uh, active in that. We went to Washington, D.C. and actually, um, you know, talked about uh, that. We lobbied our Congress people to stop that USPSTF. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're changing the guidelines. Pre- preventative task force. Yes, right. Thank you. <laughs> and so I, I know um, that was a big deal for us to be able to see that and be part of that. And then, um, obviously, uh, when we were on break, you said something really important. And so I want you to make sure you, you repeat that for us. Could you give me a clue? I, you know, I'm an old <laughs> man. I can't remember. <laughs> One thing I it would was, say in response to your introduction, which is fantastic, and I'm so pleased that you did there and lobbied them, and I think you guys are part of a – that made a difference to push it back. So that's, that's critical. Now, people who want to petition the government and need more information can, can go to um, – uh, 40not50.org and they can sign our pet petition and I would encourage to re- your listeners to, to sign that petition and then send an email to all your friends and say sign the petition because the more uh, we c- more people we can get on that petition the more influence we might have so in terms of our two petition processes we got about 30,000 signatures more so on, on the regular just uh, handwritten ones but, but the total is, is very significant Right, right. That makes sense. Okay, so when tell me, just take a minute and explain dense breasts. You know what does that mean? Okay, so this is it, it's really a lot easier when you can show uh, two um, uh, two images. So if, if you look at an image of a breast and it's all black, that means it's made up of fatty tissue. 
And fatty tissue is really easy for the mammogram to detect a small cancer because the cancer is white. So you have this tremendous contrast. So uh, nobody has a problem. And it, well, women who have a, a fatty breast don't need a lot of extra imaging. But many women, particularly younger women, but some women, it, it, it extends their entire life, their breast tissue is primarily white. And that's because of glandular tissue, milk-producing glands, and then uh, fibrous tissue supporting those glands. So it's just something they're born with. It's a pattern. It's just like your height and weight. I mean, it's more like your height. And it, uh, it, it, it's a pattern that you have to know about because every woman that has a mammogram should know whether she's dense or not dense. There's, there's, a, there's laws in multiple states now saying that the ordering physician for a mammogram must inform the patient if she's found to have dense breasts that she needs extra imaging and that Failure to get that may miss a cancer. The mammogram isn't perfect in those cases. It's much, much better in, fa- in fatty breasts. Yeah, right. you know, ab- yeah. about a long time ago, before I was ever officially diagnosed with breast cancer, I found a lump in my breast, and I was in my mid-30s. I went in for a mammogram, and the doctor told me that it was just fibrous tissue and not to worry about it. And of course, you know, we hear what we want to hear, so I made the decision not ever to worry about it. And then when it finally evolved to a certain point, it was a stage three tumor. But I wonder now, looking back on all of that, because I don't think they knew as much about it then, that maybe that was my problem as I actually may have had cancer back then, but I had dense breasts, so it didn't show up on a mammogram. And back then, nobody recommended an ultrasound. So, So I think what I'm hearing you say, Dr. West, is to be certain. I think sometimes we go with what we wanted to hear was the right thing. So, you know, we just kind of leave it there. But but we really should, just to be sure, make sure that we're getting that ultrasound as well, just, just in case. And if Is there's that... any question, let them go ahead and do a core needle biopsy so they can come up with a specific diagnosis. Because if it okay. comes back fibroadenoma, you have nothing to worry about. Or if they do the ultrasound right. and it's a cyst, you can aspirate it to go away. But if it's a, a cancer, you want to make that diagnosis as soon as possible and get that patient into treatment as soon as possible. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. So, so what would you... In, in, in your opinion, what's the best way to find a, a great local breast surgeon? What, what should we look for? Well, there's, there's no easy way for, you know, rural communities are probably going to have to say, it, it's worth it to me if my primary doctor doesn't seem to be comfortable with it is to go to the closest larger hospital. University hospitals now virtually all have uh, breast programs. Some of them are comprehensive like ours where we have the surgeons, the oncologists, the radiation therapists, the breast imagers, uh, the plastic surgeons, all, we're all in one office. And so we can do everything in a day and get, it gets through to a, a diagnosis often within, four, within two days. So, that, that's a re- so you have to maybe look at the various centers that, around and ask some questions. You know, call in, what, what are your resources? Who are your surgeons? What's the status of your imaging? Now, imaging has gotten consistently better and better in almost all the places. But the surgery, and, and it, are these full-time breast surgeons? Are they part-time general surgeons? Uh, are the oncologists associated with this? What about the plastic surgery program? What about the research program? So you, if you ask the right questions, and I think, again, in the book, there's a, a chapter on how to find the right physician. So one of the things, they can actually email me directly on uh, breastcare.com, and uh, I can go to my reference guide where I can find the the members of the American Society of Breast Surgeons, and I know most of those people, and I know their qualifications, so I can share that address uh, with the patient. So the easiest thing, is, I guess, is to email me at uh, 
uh, restcare.com. That's great. That's a very generous offer. I really appreciate that. Well, you know what? Let's let's get into some fun stuff because we're in our second, our first break right now, or whatever second period. And I don't want to run out of time because we've got some really interesting things to ask you about. So, um, you know, there's been we're going to get into the con- the conflict kind of stuff. There's been some talk, and Sharon, I know you remember this too, where there was a, a debate whether um, self breast exam was helpful or necessary. And what do you what what do you find are the stand on the major players, you know, those in the breast cancer well, arena? What stand are they taking on it and what do you think about that? Well, first of all, I disagree with the American Cancer Society and I disagree with their argument and I disagree with Coleman. I've talked to the Coleman people in great detail. They sort of admit it works, but they say the their their direction is is more on research and uh, other things. That's not their primary. So they basically say it both groups say it doesn't work. It does work if you do it properly, but here's the problem with self-exam. You tell a woman to go home and examine her breast, she feels lumps everywhere, she gets apprehensive and then doesn't want to do it. What I do after I examine a patient, I say, never look for a lump. Go and learn the pattern of your normal breast. It may take several days. They can go to BeAwareFoundation.org. I've got a video. We remind people every month to do self-exam. I write a new article every month on breast health. So they go to that website. They can see a video on how to do breast self-exam with confidence. But the best time to start is after your doctor has uh, has done an exam and says you're normal, you've had your imaging, it's normal. Ideally, for younger women, you do it five to ten days after the onset of the period. So if they... If they learn the normal pattern, they've got it fixed in their mind, and they stop looking for lumps and just go through a a careful exam uh, on a regular basis, on a monthly basis, if something changes in there, they'll know it right away. They'll know. And they'll go into their doctor. And they say, what is this? And if the doctor says, well, I I don't feel anything. Well, you know what? I've seen that happen where I couldn't feel the cancer. The patient could feel it, put an ultrasound on it, and this thing lights up. So so I think treating it, it doesn't work the way it's taught in general, the way the American Cancer Society, uh, unless there, some patients will catch on to that, but it's a lot easier to do it and not look for lumps and learn the pattern, do it regular, and trust your brain. If something changes, you'll pick it up before the doctor could pick it up. Exactly. If you know what normal is for you, you'll be able to tell what isn't normal. You know, if there's something in there that's that a change in your breast tissue. And so I think that is the biggest message is to know what normal is for you. And then whether and, it's and I, you or your partner can, can just almost yeah. detect something different. Yeah. And I, I and have to tell you guys, uh, Dr. West, let me just say this real quick. Let, let me just say this real quick. Okay. When I had my, um, my, my first cancer on my right side, it was eight years later, and I was had been going in for annual mammograms, and it had been 10 months since my previous mammogram. And I felt my own tumor on the left side in the shower, and it was big. And I think what happened is it was so deep, it just finally got big enough for me to feel. And I felt it on a self-breast exam because I did mine in the shower with soap, and it was really kind of an easy way to, to do that. But had I not found it then... And I waited, you know, a few more months for my next mammogram. Who knows how advanced? Because it was stage three then too. So, you know, I totally agree that that it is necessary, but they do need to be done right. And I think that's the main message: is that if they don't give the proper instructions and and you're doing it wrong and you don't catch anything, then they're probably not as effective. So I think that's that's really 
The problem is there's not a quantitative way to prove if they're saving lives. And so I think that's probably why, you know, some of the bigger organizations have have taken the stand that they have is because they cannot prove that it really is helping. Um, But I've talked to women on a regular basis that that have found their own lumps. So I know it works. It's just knowing what's normal for you. Yeah. Overall, about in this country, half of the cancers present as lumps. Now, in an area, an urban area like Orange County, it's, lumps are for the women that go in for the mammograms are fairly unusual because we usually catch them before they're palpable. But out in the general community, most people who are not being followed by in a breast center, uh, those will often show up as a lump. That's what brings them into the center. They use the ultrasound. They make the diagnosis. So I know it's, a, it's just a layer of protection. And I think when you learn to do it with confidence, you feel better about things. So it does take some time. It takes a mind over matter to kind of, you know, get over the hump of all this bumpiness being normal. But it is. And uh, it, it works. And I've seen it work. Right, uh, right. Well, so, let's ask about estrogen and hormones and birth yeah. control pills and all that, because that's that's a big question that women have. You know, you go through menopause, you want to do something to fix the, the symptoms of that, but are we putting our lives at risk if we do that? Well, that's a great question. Unfortunately, we have a very wonderful answer to that, and the answer with estrogen alone relatively low dose, whatever controls 90% of your menopausal symptoms is the dose you should be on, and then you might be able to taper that in time, but it's, it's, it's completely safe. Now, the, the, the real bugaboo is for the woman who has an intact uterus who's not had a hysterectomy. Over four years of estrogen plus progesterone leads to a small blip, an increase in cancer risk, and the longer they take the combination, the, the the curve continues to show an increased uh, risk. Now, there's a new product out called Duavi. I don't have stock in the company, but it, <laughs> it's a, a different combination that's safe to take, and it protects the uterus and uh, lowers the risk of, of getting uh, cancer back to normal. So, uh, the so even for estrogen positive, even for estrogen positive women who have, because I've got estrogen well, fed, Cancer. The estrogen doesn't cause the cancer. It, it increases uh, the rate of cancer. But right. it, when they look at, at mortality and they look at incidence, it, that long term, the estrogen alone, the most recent studies show no problem at all. No increased mm. uh, risk. Huh, well, that's the combination. Hormone positive or hormone negative. It's just it, the, the, the cancer is going to show up anyway. It'll just show up earlier with the estrogen. Oh, okay. Interesting perspective. How, how did you spell the name of that? That H R T U D U V E E D U V U. Well, I'm sorry, Sharon. Did you get that? <laughs> One more what? time. D U D U V double E. Okay, got it. Got mm-hmm. it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Um, so all right. So I, I here comes the big question, and we've only got a few minutes, but we if we have to stretch the break, we will. Um, can cell phones cause breast cancer? Yes. Talk oh, that was the shortest it. answer I could give you. Well, here it is. <laughs> but I need more. <laughs> you know, I can't prove it, and neither can anybody else. But when I see 21-year-old girls with no family history have a, a, a cancer in their breast directly under where they place their cell phone for several years, and the pattern of the uh, cancer under when we take the breast off or remove the cancer shows this unusual pattern of what we call multifocal, multiple little fine cancers, in general, 
close to the distribution of the cell phone, not exactly, but close enough that you say, wow, this is really unusual. And this, we saw the same pattern in the four, late, uh, four cases that we uh, published our first paper on that had to do with uh, breast cancer risk and cell phone exposure. So, I, And the, the recent uh, studies done by the uh, National Tumor Association or whatever it was, that, that they showed that in rats there was an increased risk of cancers and high-risk lesions. So the cell phone does more than just heat up uh, tissue. It actually causes damage that uh, predisposes the cells to become cancerous, and it should be by all means eliminated. And particularly you know, the teenage girls that are going, because that's yeah. a cool thing for them to do. They store it in their bra, so nobody, you know, so it's convenient for them. But uh, they're the ones I think are most vulnerable because they have developing breasts. Oh, that's yeah, true. That and you know, it's it's so hard to when you're young like that. You think you're you're immune to everything. Invincible, so, of yeah, course. So yeah. So I don't even know how you communicate that message in a way that they might actually pay attention to. I I don't know. Well, how, Sharon, how do we do that? Make, Make the bra a no-phone zone, and I think that this is what parenting is all about. The easy things are easy, of course. This is a yeah. hard one, and, and I think you take the cell phone away from them if, if they don't do it properly. And I mean, yeah, maybe they'll get another one, maybe they won't. But you've got to come down hard on this because the last thing you want to be is the mother of a 21-year-old girl who has breast cancer, needs a mastectomy and chemotherapy. Wow. Yeah, I see. I haven't really noticed a lot of people putting their phone in their bra. I guess I have to be more um, aware of that, especially the younger crowd. So yeah, um, I will definitely common. say something. <laughs> if I see someone do that, I will go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wow. hopefully, hopefully they'll listen. I remember one time I was in a restroom and these two girls, probably about 17, were in there washing their hands. And this older lady, probably around 80, came out of the stall. And when she left the room, one of the girls said, you know what? I'm never getting old. And I just looked at her like, okay, <laughs> there's only one too. other option to that girl. So, that, yeah. you know, there's, there's oh, a little bit. It work for me. I, yeah. <laughs> it's really funny. Well, listen, we're going to go out to break. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Dr. West about his book and, um, and, and also a little bit about... What, when doctors tell you it's time to get your affairs in order. So we're going to talk about all that. I think that's going to be a very emotional topic. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. For Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio, visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. When was the last time you felt free? It's time to uncover that feeling again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a card that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states. Giving you the freedom to love, to dream, to dance like no one is watching. Regions Blue Cross Blue Shield. Live fearless. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to our program. We've been talking to Dr. John West, uh, breast cancer surgeon and author of Prevent, Survive, Thrive, Every Woman's Guide to Optimal Breast Care. Um, So while we were on break, we were talking about stress. And so, Dr. West, I would love to hear your um, opinion about stress and how that may have something to do with uh, women getting our breast cancer. Well, well, I think there's a correlation. It's one of those things just like the cell phone. It's hard to prove it. But there's some indirect evidence, uh, scientific evidence, that suggests that's the case. And I, I'm convinced that, you know, being in a job or having a family situation where you're for long periods of time, you're under great stress. Your cortisol levels are going up. You're prepared to the fight or flight kind of situation where you're prepared for the worst. And that, that's, that's a stress on your system. And I think when you have a stress, it stresses your immune system. And it's our immune system that kills those cancer cells that develop uh, before they mutate. But once those cancer cells uh, or those cells do mutate, then it's, it's, it's too late. So I think it sets up uh, a situation where you're, it's one of the risk factors, many risk factors for de- developing breast cancer. And I don't think in our lifetime we'll be able to prove one way or the other because it's just so hard to measure. But I, right. my, my reading convinces me that that is an issue. Well, and what I have found, and again, I don't have any scientific proof of it, but it seems like I will talk to a woman and it's like, Boom, something happens. Boom, something else happens. And then breast cancer is like the icing on the cake. So it's like this constant um, stressful kind of thing that they've been dealing with, um, whether it's, you know, dealing with a death of a parent or, you know, their problem with their teenage kids or, (laughs) you know, life, just general life stuff that happens. And it seems like it's you know, um, after a lot of craziness in their life, then boom, they get breast cancer. So, and also you mentioned uh, sleep. I think that's a huge piece of this puzzle as well. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, it's very hard to get out of st- stressful situations, but I think just taking a deep breath, learning maybe to meditate or take yoga, uh, we need to, and we need to exercise. You know, those things are all very powerful risk reducers. And so most of us are under stress a lot of the time, and we have to learn how to deal with that stress more effectively. Right. That makes sense. And of course, that can cause problems sleeping. And, and so then if we're not getting our seven, eight hours of sleep, then that continues to break down our immune system, I believe. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So, um, so let's, I don't know, talk about that elephant in the room. Um, what do you do if you're on on your your oncologist states that there's no hope and it's time to fill out your will and kind of get your affairs in order. So what what 
What are, what's your well, feeling about that? Had several situations. Let me just give you an example of the first patient uh, that I had that, had that informed me that's what she was told. But th- this is Barbara Scott. I can give you her name because she's willing to talk to anyone. She's at our center regularly. She was 34 when she found a, a lump. They biopsied it. It was cancer. They took off her breast. There were no nose. It said everything's fine. She started following with her oncologist at every six-month interval. At the third six-month interval, he had had her get a chest X-ray before she showed up. Uh, when they were sitting talking, he showed, he showed the x-ray and he said, your lungs are basically full of cancer. You have approximately six months to live. Um, I'm going to uh, give you chemo, but it's, it's only going to slow the growth. So now's the time to fill out your will. Well, she's 34 year survivor right now. It turns out she was BRCA positive and uh, uh, not, you just don't know. And we've seen patients who we think had so little chance of survival. But here's the big news is that we have new immunotherapy coming on board that we are absolutely convinced that it has a potential, even with advanced cancers. And if they want to call us, if they have an advanced triple negative cancer, we can get them on a protocol to, to, uh, to block that. But we, you know, with Jimmy Carter had those multiple uh, mets to his brain. They weren't responding to treatment. They thought, oh, ready to give up. They gave him immunotherapy blocking drug those three years ago, and now he's totally tumor-free. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So we, we are coming up with so many wonderful advances in in the oncology department. And I guess my feeling is once you lose hope, you kind of pack up your tent and go home. And um, yeah. and so um, getting a second opinion when you get some crushing news like that might be helpful. You know, getting on trials, looking up those kinds of things to see, again, being your own best health advocate, because if, if you're ready to go, that's one thing. But, you know, I don't think any 34-year-old woman is ready to go. Not <laughs> even a little bit. Yeah. Not even yeah. a little bit. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's a tough one. Well, you know, we're, we're, before we run out of time, I really want to get to your book. So why don't you tell us about your book? Why did you write it? You know, that sort of thing. Tell well, it because it know, sounds like it's it, great. I, I have a 40-year perspective. Not a lot of people have that. I've seen us go from radical mastectomy to nipple-sparing mastectomy to uh, a whole host of things in terms of early detection with, uh, uh, with the new MRIs and the 3D mammograms. Uh, more, great progress in, in risk assessment and risk reduction, uh, genetics. But the reality is, most people are just not aware of it. Most doctors are not aware of it. And it's, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. The doctor's going to have less and less time to talk with patients because they have more and more paperwork uh, to do. So uh, I, did, I kept, for about a year, I thought I should write the book. And then I was sitting down with a patient doing a second opinion. And uh, she had a very complex case. I got done talking to her. She kind of put her head down. Normally, that doesn't happen. And I didn't, she paused, and then she looked up at me, and she says, Doc, just tell me what you would do if I were your wife. And I said, you know what? That's right. That's exactly what every woman wants. So that's the advice I give in my book. What I would tell my wife, my daughter, my granddaughter, this is the best advice I know how to give. And I've seen it work. It, it can save lives. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. So, so how, how can we- our... Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Go, go ahead, Sharon. I was just going to ask, so how do our listeners get a copy of your book? 
Well, they can just go to Amazon.com and type it in, and it pops right up. Uh, if they want more information on the book, I think breastcare.com gives a, a pictures and descriptions and pr- provides some information that might be useful. So, But the main thing is go to Amazon. That's where you can get the book, and you can get it delivered in a day or two. That's great. So what do you see in the future? Is there a cure for breast cancer? Is it in sight? Yes, I think so. My new boss is uh, Patrick Soon Shang, who's probably the lead cancer investigator, I think, in the world. He is convinced that he can have cancer cured by the year 2020, and he's, I'm working with him now, and he's doing everything humanly possible to make that a date to make sure that he can treat any. Right now, he's treating advanced cancers. Uh, he's had most of his experience with pancreatic cancers, and he's only de- dealt with patients so far that have been told they have three to six months to live. And he's got many patients now that have been told that they've gone through his immune therapy and they're alive 10 years later with no evidence of tumor. So I, not yeah. only is there hope, I think there's hope soon. I think it's, we're, we're on target to, to really t- take care of this terrible disease. Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of of rumors, speculation, et cetera, and we still have a couple more minutes. But you know, there's a lot of people that think that they're the cure's already here, but they're just being greedy and hanging on to it because they make much more money if they put people on chemo rather than cure it. What are your thoughts well, on that? You're absolutely right, and and. We see this a lot, even in our fairly sophisticated neighborhood. So I think there's some doctors that really milk the system and other doctors that have a feel that there's a point where you have to sit down with the patient and say, you know, we don't want you, we don't think you're going to gain much by further treatment. Maybe now's the time to stop, maybe go to hospice, but hopefully well before they need to go to hospice. So it, it has to be, again, individualized. A very young patient, it's really hard to give up on them. And to say two years from now, we think we'll have the cure, that doesn't do any good for the person that's having it today. So I think that's the kind of case I would go to a, a university hospital or a major hospital like Mayo Clinic or Sloan Kettering in New York or MD Anderson in, in the South. There's a lot of great places, and I think you can, you know, Google breast care centers and, and get some useful information. But a second opinion, come to visit us in Orange County, even in the wintertime. I mean, it's 75 degrees out. You kind of ought to come yeah. visit. Well, that's, that's <laughs> worth a trip right there. We're yeah. in Oregon, and it's cold today. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah so, well, Sharon, you wanted to go back and ask a question. Um, yeah, that, I- we, we, we just touched of, on briefly. Yeah, we, the, the whole BRCA thing. Who needs genetic testing, and where where do you think we should look into that? Well, right now, you can go online without a doctor's referral, run through some uh, educational videos, and then put your credit card in for $250. They'll send you a kit. You can spit into the kit, and they'll test you for 30 different genes, including BRCA1 and 2. So uh, we have most of our patients come into our office, and we counsel them, and we do all of that for them, and we send off blood where it comes back a lot quicker, but, and most hospitals have some uh, program that does something similar uh, to that. But the reality is it, when Angela, Gina Jolie was diagnosed four years ago, it was $4,000 and uh, they were very selective of who they w- would test. Now, any woman who has cancer in the family has children or grandchildren and wants to be sure she isn't passing the gene on to them. That's one of the commonest reasons I, well, we get the gene testing here because it's not that we're, we think they're likely to be positive, but we want to convince them that they're negative. But every once in a while, 
one that totally surprises us comes up positive. Mm-hmm. So I think you should have a very low threshold of testing uh, patients of any age, except for the very elderly, and particularly attentive to uh, any woman who is of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage because it's much higher risk in that subgroup. Yeah, yeah and true. I know that back when I was tested, all they could test for was BRCA1 and 2, and now they've got so many new ones. Is it worth going back in for that second round of screening? I would. I think because there's 28 other genes that we know of, and uh, just knowing you're negative and knowing that you're not passing it on to future generations, I I think is helpful. So yeah. how old were you when you had it done initially? You were uh, in your it was, 30s? It was, no, it was because I was diagnosed officially at 43 and yep. so it's probably at 45 or 6 or something. So it's, well, it's been a while. Example. We had a 43-year-old that came to us with cancer, so we automatically sent it off at that age. It came back negative. She, she, I mean, I'm sorry, it came back positive. She had the mutation. She said, that's impossible. It's not in my family. And so she went and, and really looked into the family history and called people. It turns out her great-grandfather had wow. invasive breast cancer who passed the gene on to her grandfather who passed wow. it on to her father who passed it on to her. So the point is, we don't know. That's and, true. Uh, and they didn't talk about think, it back then. Yeah. yeah, if it's in your family, I think future generations have the right to know, so we don't have to test every one of them. If if you test negative, then you know you couldn't have passed it on from your side of the family. You have to consider the father's side of the family, of course. As well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. my dad's side of the family has quite a bit, had quite a bit of breast cancer in it, and I didn't know that when I was first diagnosed because, again, no, no one talked about it. So That's a we, learned the, we learned the hard way, but, but yeah. I, did, I tested but we're negative. Learning. We're learning. Yeah. I tested negative, so there, but there still may be something there. Well, yeah. Dr. West, you know we're we're gonna we're coming to the close of our program, but I want to remind our listeners: go to Amazon.com, search for the book "Prevent, Survive, Thrive: Every Woman's Guide to Optimal Breast Care." Sounds like a fascinating book. I'm I'm sorry to say I haven't read it yet, but it sounds like a great book, and I really appreciate you so much for writing it, for the passion that you have around all of this. Um, you are you're just a breath of fresh air. We know you're in our court. And Sharon, you have anything to add to that? Because I, I just I think this has been great. No, I just I'm I'm excited to um, have had you on our show, Dr. West. And so thank you for being with us. And uh, with that, um, I think we need to just chat about uh, <laughs> breast friends for a second. Just huh? for a second, yeah. So yeah. you know, we've we do have a pretty good website and a lot of those questions that Come into Dr. West when he, when people are first diagnosed. Some of those might be coming right off our website. We have a page called um, Questions to Ask Your Doctor, and there's a lot of other good resources on there. So go to breastfriends.org, search around in the search tool. You can find all kinds of stuff. We also have an app you can download. It's called the Breast Friends app, and it's uh, available through Google Play Store as well as the App Store um, also, just for those who are listening and maybe have never thought about doing this before, we um, we provide this this program for free. We don't charge any of our our guests to be on our show, but we do still have to pay for the show. So we would love it if you would consider if you're listening to our show today, go to the to breastfriends.org. There's a big blue button right at the top of the page that says donate. And you are welcome to make a donation there. Anything that you can provide to us helps us keep this this show going, as well as our all of our other programs and services. Boy, this this bronchitis is catching up to me. I can um, tell. <laughs> <laughs> but we will be back next week. We've got a pretty exciting show again next week for you. And we will be back. Until then, remember, 
There is always hope, and we're here to help you find it. Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Please join Sharon Hennepin and Becky Olson again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. There is always hope and we'll help you find it. We'll talk again next time.